Okay, so we're in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. Um, our series is called Mission Unstoppable, and that is kind of what we see in the passage today. We see God's mission literally being unstoppable. So um, kind of fits in nicely with the, the, the whole title of the series. So as Jones read to us, the passage we're going to look at, it's a kind of interesting topic again. It's Peter gives a sermon, and we're going to have a sermon on a sermon. It's, um, yeah, it's probably the only place in the world where that would be possible is in talking about something somebody else has been talking about, um, that somebody else has written about, that somebody else has told him that he was talking. It's you know, a very strange set of events have led up to us here today, uh, looking at what Peter said 2,000 years ago. Um, and I've called it Rejection Reward. So hopefully that will make sense as we go through. However, uh, we weren't in the book of Acts last week. We were looking, uh, we were in Cafe Church. We had the topic of God, the Gospel, and Google. Um, so I thought it's really important to start with a bit of context. We can't really jump into Peter's sermon without a little bit of background to help us. So the wider picture of the big story is this. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He was born that first Christmas. It's what, seven weeks? Seven and a half weeks until Christmas? Terrifying. Do your shopping. Um, get it done in time, otherwise you'll be late. Um, so yeah, first Christmas, Jesus came, Jesus was born as a man. He was the God-man. He lived a perfect life. Um, and at about 30, he began his ministry. He was teaching, he was preaching, he was healing, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, gathering and training disciples. And then about three years later, he was taken and killed. He was tortured, placed on a Roman cross to die. He died and they buried him in the grave. Three days later, God brought Jesus back to life. And then he spent 14 more days teaching and doing miracles and training his disciples further. Then he ascended into heaven. Ten days after that, he sent his spirit from heaven into this world. And the spirit fills the disciples and they realize that even though Jesus isn't physically there with them, he is still the God-man and he is spiritually there with them. He is still the king of this world. But instead of standing next to them, he's standing next to God the Father in heaven and he's ruling by his spirit in the lives of his disciples. Now the disciples are going to be doing the things that he did because they have his spirit, they have his life, his truth to take to the world. So Jesus' disciples are going to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and make more disciples. And what they've done is they've made more disciples who are disciple-making disciples, because if they didn't, we wouldn't be here as Christians today. So that's what their aim was, to make disciple-making disciples. And Peter is the lead one at this point in the story. He's the kind of boss of the disciples. Jesus said he would be, and he is. So Peter, um, sorry, so before Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3 that, we, that Joan read to us, we need to just remind ourselves of what, what happened kind of immediately before. And that is when Peter and John, who we described as the Batman and Robin of the early church, they're kind of really important key figures, but just men, like uh, Batman and Robin, um, through the power of Jesus' name, on their way to prayer in the temple, they healed a man who'd been lame from birth. They said to him, silver and gold, we haven't got. So he was asking for money. So he said, but what we have got is Jesus, 
And because Jesus invented legs, he can fix yours. So they healed him in the name of Jesus. The guy's healed. He jumps to his feet. He's never used his legs. He jumps to his feet. And jumping and dancing and praising God, he goes into the temple with Peter and John. And he's doing all that. As we read at the beginning of this passage, while the beggar held on to Peter and John, he's doing that at the same time as clinging on to these two people. How annoying would that be? It's like holding a child's hand who wants to go that way, then that way, then that way, then wants to be jumped up and down, and then wants to fall on the floor. You know, just imagine, they've got a full-size person who wants to jump up and down, and he's clinging on to these two people. It would just be really irritating, wouldn't it? I mean, it's, you let children get away with it because they're kids. But Hannah doesn't let me get away with it, so I can't understand why Peter and John let him get away with it. Anyway, really can't blame him. He'd never used his legs before. they just started working. He was having a great time jumping around. Then they go into the temple. They go through the beautiful gates. Um, and people start to see this chap jumping around. Partly, I imagine, that is the spectacle of seeing a full-grown man clinging on to two other full-grown men, jumping and leaping and shouting. But they start to see him start saying to each other, I'm pretty sure that that's the guy who's been begging outside the gate for years. Do you think it's him? Pretty sure it's him. The only difference is that he's smiling and walking. Let's have a closer look and see who it is. So it doesn't really take long for a big crowd to form around them. So Peter has a crowd. Um, he has a crowd gathered all around him. Now Peter, he's a bit of an evangelist. And he thinks with his evangelistic brain, you know what time it is? It is always time for a sermon in the mind of an evangelist. Um, so hopefully you agree, it's always time for a sermon. Maybe not, but um, that's what we're doing now. So Peter thinks it's always time for a sermon. Here's a crowd, that's it. They're going to hear what I have to say about Jesus. So, at the start of his sermon, so in, from where are we looking, kind of verse 11, it says, while the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Okay. So Peter starts by addressing the crowd. In, I'm not sure which version of the NIV you might have in front of you or which version of the Bible you have. Some say fellow Israelites. So the one I looked at in the week it said fellow Israelites, but Peter um, uses the word men. He talks primarily to the men. I'm not sure if this is particularly because he's, he's got a male crowd, um, but it's not that he's ignoring the women or doesn't care for them or anything like that. But I think it's the men that he primarily wants to address. Because in his sermon, he takes on a kind of masculine theme. He talks about a grandfather, a father and a son um, a little bit later on. And it's not that... Yeah, it's not that he doesn't want the women to listen, but he wants to particularly address the men, I think. Um, but it's got a lot of interesting things in there. So just as we kind of put that, put all that aside for one moment, so when he addresses the men, he uses examples of what we call the patriarchs. And these are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the grandfather, father, and son that started out as the kind of, they're the, you know, the kind of top of the tree of the Jews. They're the people who began Judaism, because that's who God chose. Um, however, currently today, for the men amongst us, I believe that it is at your feet that God lays 
the burden of responsibility for your family or for your singleness. You know, whether you're married or not, or have children or not, God expects men to be men who take responsibility, to be loving and caring and leading and sacrificial for the good and for the godliness of their families. Statistically, I found this out this week, that if, if a husband loves Jesus, it's way more likely that his wife and his children will love Jesus. Um, if a father loves Jesus, his children are much more likely to marry people who love Jesus too. But it's a real shame that the statistics, if you switch it round, they kind of follow. If a wife loves Jesus but the husband doesn't, it's a lot less likely that that husband will come to faith through the wife and that the, and the children are more likely to follow the dad rather than the mum. So I believe that men are absolutely vital in God's economy. The New Testament has got loads to say to men and women. It's got loads to say to men, and it's got loads to say to women. So just before we get back to the passage, for men specifically, God says that he wants you to be the head of the family. He wants you to love your wife well, to love your kids well, kind of be in charge of the discipline, to be the one who leads the family. And if you're single... God wants you to love him and stay pure. He wants you to work hard and not to be lazy. I think men have a tendency to either run from responsibility or kind of wield it really heavily. Um, and both of those extremes, I think, are wrong. God's going to ask men to answer for their families. He'll ask women to answer for how they treated their husbands and he'll ask children to answer for how they treated their parents. I think if you're single, God will ask you to answer for your holiness and how you played your part as a role of a brother or sister, a father or mother in the church family. That all Christians are part of a family. So lastly on men, before we just jump back into the passage, Peter refers to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So these are the first three heads of Judaism. They're the kind of daddies of the Jews. And it's their legacy that um, is, is Peter's audience. He's talking to people who have come from them. And it's their legacy that Luke's reading. So Luke who writes the book of Acts. So it's the, their legacy that Peter is talking to. It's their legacy that is reading the book of Acts that Luke writes. And it's their legacy, really, that we can be part of as well. I think that men and women of God should be leaving a legacy behind them. I don't know about you, but maybe you're one in a kind of really long line of, of Christians in your family. Or maybe you're the first one and you want to leave a legacy for a really long time of people growing up knowing Jesus in your family. So I want to encourage you firstly that if you are a Christian, you've got a family, I want to encourage you to, to leave a good legacy by loving Jesus well and being part of your family as a good Christian, husband or wife. And maybe some people find Christianity difficult and think, you know what, I actually wouldn't mind just dropping all this because it's so hard. But I'd really want to encourage you to not be the one that, that breaks that chain of a legacy that stretches back to Abraham and beyond. I think in this passage the men seem a little bit wet almost because a great bit at the beginning where Peter says, in verse 12 he says when Peter saw this he said to them men of Israel why does this surprise you? I mean being surprised fair enough um, but why do you stare at us as if by our own power and godliness we have made this man walk? I feel like he's just saying to them you know, why are you staring up? Pick your mouths up off the floor Open your eyes to the truth of what's happening. 
It's like Peter says to them, I feel like I'm surrounded by startled rabbits. Um, but you know, that may be what it was like for him. So what Peter does is really quite clever. His, his sermon is quite similar in some ways to the one he preaches in Acts chapter 2, the chapter before this. Because his sermon, even though it mentions lots of other people, is really all about Jesus. He starts with Abraham, though. And that's, that's really clever, I think, because he says, the God of your fathers, who is his, his audience, and they're Jews, and they, you know, they, they believe in the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has done this amaz- amazing healing. That it's not by me, or by us, or our piety, but it's the God of your fathers. And I think he goes to the God of your fathers rather than straight to Jesus because so far they're on side with him. And that's probably not a bad thing because you can probably take a fairly well-educated guess that there are people in Peter's audience who were also in the crowd that bade for Jesus' blood when they shouted for him to be crucified. So if Peter went straight in with Jesus, you can imagine there could be a flip. And if the crowd don't like him, if God leaves him on his own, what they could do is they could do exactly the same to him. So so far they're on side. And he says, this same God, the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is the one who glorified Jesus. The Bible says that God won't share his glory with another, so Jesus must be God. Not that we believe that there are two gods, but that the God of the Bible is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then Peter jumps into his next section of the sermon. He kind of addresses them, says they look like startled rabbits, and he jumps into the next bit. There we go. He jumps into uh, the bit on rejection. So, this is talking about the kind of fourfold rejection of these people towards their king. God's holy chosen king, Jesus. So, there's four of these. That's why it's fourfold. And the first one is this. So, verse 13. Let's read that together. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go that last little bit there where he says you handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate though he had decided to let him go this is the first rejection that Peter talks about before he says you took this God man Jesus and you had him falsely tried and convicted when the kind of judicial authorities had found no guilt in him you forced the hand of the courts you corrupted justice we know that God loves justice and you acted in a godless way there is in this story an example of a man not being a man Pilate could have freed Jesus because he found nothing wrong with him it was Pilate's job to kind of say he's guilty or he's innocent he said there was nothing wrong with him but he wouldn't face the prospect of the loss of popularity and instead he buckled and he convicted Jesus, the innocent Jesus, because he was insecure and pride and proud. That was the first one. He handed him over. 
So they, yeah, they delivered him and kind of denied the truth of who he was. Second one, uh, verse 14 says, You disowned the holy and righteous one. Can you imagine being in the crowd at this point? So you've had one. You handed him over to Pilate. You had him wrongly accused, tried, and killed. You disowned the holy and righteous one. All people are unholy and unrighteous apart from Jesus. You know, this, above all things, kind of proves it. The man who was all loving, truthful, compassionate, forgiving, merciful, slow to anger, the one who was holy and righteous, Peter said to his crowd, you are the ones who disowned him. You who are meant to be the holy ones that God had chosen, the righteous ones, the ones who always went to the temple, who always did the sacrifices, who obeyed the law, you couldn't see the law made flesh in front of your very eyes. You couldn't see that Jesus was God's man. When we stand before God, he asks us, uh, he'll ask us, where is your holiness and where is your righteousness? And there are two ways we can go about trying to answer that question. We stand before God and he says, where is your holiness or where is your righteousness? There are two ways. Way number one, God says to you, where is your holiness and where is your righteousness? First option is this. You can say, but God, don't you remember my giving to charity, my attendance at church every week, prayer meeting, you know, whatever it is, my work providing for my family, my giving money to the homeless people, buying a big issue and volunteering in all sorts of different well-meaning activities. God's response to that will be, None of that makes you holy or righteous. So that's the first option, but it doesn't work. The second option is my personal favorite. You can say, God, I have no holiness or righteousness of my own at all. But Jesus is my holiness. And Jesus is my righteousness. And he says that I can have his because I put my faith and trust in him. God responds to the first way by way of eternal judgment of hell, but to the second of eternal fullness of life with him. So that was the second rejection it talked about. In the same verse, it says in verse 14, uh, you disown the holy and righteous one, and you ask that a murderer be released to you. So not only did your rejection of the innocent and righteous and Holy One lead to his death. But you chose a convicted prisoner found guilty instead of Jesus. It's a bit like rubbing salt in the wounds. This Jesus who was perfect and good and righteous, you disowned. And it's kind of, you can almost see it's almost one thing to disown him, but it's completely another to have a convicted law-breaking murderer set free in his place. And then the fourth one of the rejections, and almost the most ironic one, in verse 15, he says, you killed the author of life. Now, probably at this point in the sermon wasn't a very uplifting sermon for the people listening. He says, you killed the author of life. The greatest of all rejections of really upside down and back to front. The one who is and who made 
and he brings life. You know, the man that made all things, Jesus, the life giver, the way, the truth, and the life, Peter says to his crowd, you kill him. That's the, the fourfold rejection of Jesus by Peter's audience. He says, you're falsely accused, disowned, you exchanged him for a murderer, and you killed him. You know, that's really Peter's diagnosis of the hearts of the men that he's talking to. But really, this is also Peter's diagnosis of our hearts too. If we don't know Jesus, that is the situation spiritually that we're in. You may as well put yourself in the crowd that falsely accused Jesus, that disowned Jesus, that called for the murderer to be released instead of Jesus, and that killed Jesus. That's the diagnosis of the heart of men and women that don't know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus personally, you stand guilty and condemned of Jesus' murder and betrayal. That's the kind of bad news. That's where Peter starts. But then Peter draws us to see what God is doing before he tells them what to do. So he says, this is what you've done. This is really bad. You've rejected Jesus four different ways. And then he talks about God's work before he tells them what's going to happen. So he says in that verse, he says, you killed the author of life. So that's what they did. They killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Peter says, even though he killed Jesus, God raised Jesus from the dead. And he did that for you and for me. The interesting thing I find in the New Testament, in the, in the book of Acts is, Peter says that they witnessed the resurrection. And nobody goes, no you didn't. You're just tricking me because nobody comes back from the grave. Nowhere through the book of Acts do we see that. If that was the case, it'd be recorded somewhere. But he says, God raised him from the dead. It's accepted throughout all of the early church by the non-Christians because there were so many witnesses to seeing Jesus come back to life. So, at this point, not only is Jesus not still dead, but he's living and he's active in his world, making people's legs better. Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. He's ascended into heaven and he's ruling and reigning. Jesus is still saving. He's still healing and he's still working. Even though they rejected Jesus, God never did. Even though we have all at some point rejected Jesus, some people here today may still be rejecting him. God never did. Jesus is alive and he can make you alive too. So Peter talks to these Jewish people. So verse 17 and 18 he says, Now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. So, you know, we could spend a couple of hours just on, on these two verses alone, but let's not. Just see that Peter, firstly, he identifies himself with his audience. He kind of says, Now brothers... 
Now he's putting himself with the people that he's with. I know that you acted in ignorance. And that's quite important because um, they now know that they've rejected God's holy chosen King Jesus. Acting in ignorance is one thing. According to the Jewish law, if you did something wrong in ignorance, it wasn't as bad a punishment as if you knew what you were doing. So acting in ignorance is one thing. In the law, you are less culpable. When you sinned in ignorance, you weren't kind of as punished for it. But when you knew you'd sinned, you become fully culpable for your actions. Now they realize that they're fully culpable for the death of Jesus. And he says, it's not just you kind of little Jewish people that he's talking to, but also the Roman authorities, the Jewish leaders, are all equally culpable for Jesus' death. He didn't realize that he was the Christ or the Messiah or the one whom God had sent to save you from your rejection of God. However, you know now is the kind of tone of his voice. He says, look, you rejected him. You didn't realize I have made it very plain and simple for you to realize that you now know you rejected God's chosen, appointed king. Now, they have to decide what they do with their sin that Peter has pointed out to them. They now realize that they are the ones who have rejected Jesus. And for us here today, if you don't know Jesus, we can realize that we are the ones who have rejected him as well. Let me just add that pointing out somebody's sin to them it's not cruel or mean or, or judgmental it's, it's really loving beyond measure if someone's heading to a lost eternity of death and hell they need to know how we do it maybe can sound cruel or mean or judgmental but the act itself isn't it's what we're called to do so Peter goes on to say though you acted in ignorance you fulfilled the prophecies of God the Messiah would suffer. He says to these Jewish people, you know the Old Testament, you Jews knew that the Messiah was going to come and suffer for his people. Ironically, even though you knew this, even though this was all written down for you, you caused the suffering of the Messiah. Okay. So Peter has a response and then he has some rewards for the people. So Peter says, you've heard the case now, yeah, you know where you stand. It says, you know that you're not righteous. In fact, you killed and rejected the only righteous one. You had him falsely accused and crucified. You had a murderer released instead of Jesus. You know you stand before me, and you, more importantly, you stand before God guilty, Peter says. Then he follows it up with, so what are you going to do about it? Peter's got a great line, and his line is, repent then and turn to God nice and simple you've done wrong, you can see that God has done a great work in Jesus so what you need to do is repent and turn to God because you can see what you've done but you also know that Jesus is not dead God raised him up and you know that he's still alive and working and active because Jesus has just healed this man here and now at this point this man's probably still jumping up and down being really annoying at Peter's side, distracting everybody who's listening. Repent, Peter says. Turn from your rejection of the Messiah or the Christ. They mean the same thing. Um, turn from your rejection of Jesus and turn to him. 
Repentance is a, a, an act of turning around from one way of life to another. From not following Jesus to following Jesus. From sin and death to light and life. From hell to heaven. That's Peter's called for response in his hearers. And that's the, the response that I'll, we want to see happening more and more. And if you don't know Jesus, that's the response that Peter would tell you to make as well. If you don't know Jesus, repent and not follow him and start to follow him. And Peter doesn't just leave it there, but he says, for those people who repent, who turn from not following Jesus, from rejecting him to following him, there are three rewards for you. So, reward number one. Uh, verse 19, let's find that. It says, repent then and turn to God. Reward number one, so that your sins may be wiped out. He says, repent, find forgiveness. That if you turn around, if you repent and you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, he is the only righteous one. He's the only holy one. And if you want to stand any ground before God his Father, you have to know Jesus and have his life, his righteousness, his holiness, his faithfulness, because you don't have any of your own. I don't have any of my own. Peter didn't have any of his own. He says, have your sins obliterated. Be, tra- be transformed from a sinner to a beginner with Jesus. The word that's used when he says, have your sins wiped out, apparently comes from where they used to, they used to write on, on, like paper was really expensive. Um, they didn't have it quite this fine. And they would, whatever they wrote on, they wrote on with kind of acid-free ink so it didn't kind of bite into the paper. So they could use it again. They could just take a damp cloth, rub the words off, and write on it again. Peter says, all your sins that have been written down, all the things you have done wrong, all the things where you have rejected God, if you turn and put your faith in Jesus, he'll take a cloth and he'll rub out every single one of them so that your account is pure. So that's what he says. Repent, have your sins forgiven. Reward number two. So the same verse, verse 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be uh, wiped out. And second reward, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So he says, have your sins dealt with and know what it means to have a clear conscience. What it means to be made clean and pure and holy and righteous by Jesus. You can't get yourself to that place of clean, pure, righteous and holy but Jesus can. So enjoy the freedom and the liberty of the children of God. Enjoy no longer being trapped by sin, but enjoy Jesus so that you don't want to do any longer the things that don't fulfill your deepest longings and desires. If you repent of your sins, times of refreshing will come over your soul. But they'll also move over the church too. As it grows and people are refreshed in Jesus, you'll be refreshed by the new life, a new perspective that you have on life, because you no longer live for the things of this world, like money or career or family, but you live for Jesus. And he rules over all those things. So that's the first two rewards. He says, have your sins forgiven, be made right with God, enjoy times of refreshing from God. And thirdly, verse 20, he says, let's read it on here, so verse 19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who is appointed for you, even Jesus, that he may send Jesus. So you get freedom from sin, that's the kind of immediate reward, 
at times of refreshing are a kind of constant one and long term and then this is a long range promise that God the Father will again send his son Jesus the Christ or the Messiah or his holy chosen king this is the truth that one day the skies will be pulled back like a curtain and everyone on the whole earth will see the truth of Jesus rule and reign over the earth right now he will one day finally destroy all sin and wickedness and evil he'll do that by punishing those who who practice it forever in hell experiencing the wrath of God for all eternity but he won't leave it there he will take this world that is broken and hurting with its pain and its illness and its death and its disease and he will redeem it, he'll restore it he will make it perfect once again and those people who have repented of their sins, who have put their faith in Jesus, will live on that new earth with bodies that won't rot or decay or break it's a perfect life in a perfect world with Jesus which is why the Bible calls it a new creation you and I will be made perfect and we'll live with Jesus forever so I thought this is a good question to ask this is what Peter is saying to his audience in the temple they've seen a guy healed all this has happened so what about us then truth is we're not really any different to Peter's first audience or to Luke's first readers, Luke who writes Acts we're the kind of same as those people because we're human we're all guilty of sin and rejection of God and if you think that you're not then it's probably a sin to be so proud and that's the worst sin of all if you think from today, right that's it I'm going to draw a line in the sand, I'm not going to sin from here on in, then God is going to like me but we've already done things wrong in our past. So what can we do about that? Well, the truth is, as Peter uh, preached 2,000 years ago, that Jesus is still the Messiah. He's still the Christ. He's still the one that God sent into this world to save people from their sins, from their rejection of God. The way God does that is still the same today as it was when Peter described it 2,000 years ago. It's still by repentance and faith. It's still turn from evil and self to joy and goodness and holiness and righteousness all found in Jesus alone if you're not a Christian here today I'd encourage you to repent of all your sins put your faith in Jesus and enjoy the forgiveness and refreshing that God wants to deliver to you if you are a Christian I want to encourage you repent from your sins and put your faith in Jesus and enjoy the refreshing of God working in your life to root out sin confess your sins ask other people who you trust to point out your sins to you so that you can repent of them as well and be changed to be more like Jesus lastly live in the light of Jesus being living, risen ascended and king of this world and this universe and by that I kind of mean when you see things that are broken and painful or friends and family get ill or sick take hope and take heart that this will not be the case forever Jesus has promised to come back and he's going to draw the sky back like a big curtain and restore the world to its true self we will live with Jesus forever in a new physical bodies in a new physical world which the Bible calls the new creation second lastly uh, lastly to trick you uh, in the light of all that 
this year is a year of mission for us as a church. Yeah. This is not just, it's, it's not, this message isn't just for you, but as we look at this mission together for a year, this is the message that needs to go out, and it needs to not stay within these four walls. A couple of weeks ago, I encourage you to be insiders, people who are already part of Jesus' family, going on mission to outsiders, people who aren't yet part of Jesus' family. People who don't know uh, that they won't be part of Jesus' new creation unless we share the truth of Jesus with them. So pray for your friends and your family that don't know Jesus. Share the truth of Jesus with them. Share the love of God with them. Invite them to our mission events, but also do the hard work of being a Christian friend to them. It's not just a friend who invites them to Christian things. Be part of our uh, gospel communities doing training on how we can do uh, evangelism if you're unsure. Now actually, finally, let us know who you're praying for as well so that we can pray with you and that you can pray with us. So let us know the names of the people that you want to pray for. If you want, you can write them down and write your name down on a piece of paper, put it in the offering box. You can text their names into the church phone and we can be praying as a community for all these people that we're praying for together. Let's be a family of Jesus on mission together in this world, sharing the good news of Jesus and his rule and reign today for the good of us, for the good of the world, and for the good of Rotherham. Amen.